Welcome to the Forge Leadership Podcast. This week, Simon Barrington is joined by Reverend Dr. Hugh Osgood, President of Churches Together in England and moderator of the Free Church Council. Hugh has over 50 years of ministry experience and shares his overview of the UK church. So welcome to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by the Reverend Dr. Hugh Osgood. Uh, Hugh is the president of Churches Together in England and also a moderator of the Free Church Council. Hugh, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here, Simon. And it's great to be in your offices in, in Bromley, uh, in a borough of London. Uh, you're a London boy. Well, I was born in West London and then I grew up in Brighton and Hove. Came back to university in London. Expected to be working in Africa, um, but ended up <laughs> church planting in London. So okay. been here ever since. And a lot of your life has been involved in ministry across London and seeing hmm. big missions across London. You were involved with Billy Graham in, in Mission 89. Yes, I was. Actually, um, I was quite impacted by the earlier Billy Graham missions. You know, back in the 60s, I was a student at the time. And, uh, and then I suppose, really, my first experience of... Uh, London-wide mission was with Louis Palau, okay. which was the same time as Mission yeah. England. Yeah. And uh, Mission to London saw me getting quite involved with the counselling and follow-up. Yeah. And so at the end of that, there was this big thing about can we keep all the connectivity? Yeah. And so I was asked if I would help set up a London-wide Evangelical Alliance. And, uh, and then it was really quite opportune when the Billy Graham organisation came to talk about Mission 89 yeah. because it was suggested that I did the follow-up for that. I was a bit reticent at first. I was doing lots of student <laughs> ministry and uh, I couldn't quite see how I was going to fit it in. But in the end, I agreed to take on the follow-up and, uh, and then I felt I could take on the counselling as well because Wynne Lewis, who was going to handle that, felt that it was too much. So I ended up being chair of both counselling and follow-up for that, which was a huge uh, opportunity, really, um, working with other people with, from the organisation. Great learning experience. But also it gave me an opportunity to get to know London. I, I got to know where the dynamic churches were, where, where the challenges were, which churches needed strengthening, and, and just a huge, huge privilege. And I've sort of kept that London awareness ever since, um, and obviously done many other things that have been London-wide since yeah. 1989. And, and London's changed a lot over the years, hasn't it? You know, it's now <laughs> home to um, the world, really, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, over 50 languages spoken here. And the church has changed a lot during that time as well. And we've seen a lot of immigration into yeah. London yeah. and ethnic minority churches planted. What, what's your role been in that? Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, <laughs> role in that's quite an interesting statement because I remember when I was a student, I was... Uh, I was looking at doing medicine and dentistry, so I was at Bart's and then I was at the Royal Dental Hospital in Leicester Square, as it was then. And uh, one of the things we found when we were trying to evangelise fellow students was that a lot of them would just say, well, I'm already a Christian, you know, born in a Christian country. And so a big thing that we were praying about was, Lord, take the nominalism out of the church. We thought the church would be so much stronger if all the nominalism went out of the church. And then the other thing we prayed, because many of us, you know, having looking at doing medical stuff and looking at maybe serving overseas, we're beginning to think, well, you know, we, we could go to some of these countries, but wouldn't it be better if people came here, yeah. where we had an opportunity to evangelize them yeah. here? Yeah. And so we started praying, Lord, you know, <laughs> why don't you send all of these different people from yeah. different faiths into yeah. this country yeah. where the church can have a real impact? Yeah. So when you asked me, uh, you know, what was my involvement? There have been a few people who've suggested that my prayers caused a lot of problems. <laughs> Not that I was the only person praying that, but it did significantly end up with a, a, a huge change in London in terms of the way that churches, the way that um, 
the population is. So yeah, huge changes really. Mm. But yeah, that's how it began. And then and then after that, obviously, when you're looking at doing London-wide things, I, I, one of my big challenges during uh, the Luis Palau mission was trying to engage the Caribbean churches. Yes. And out of that, we set up what became the African and Caribbean Evangelical Alliance, which I was one of the trustees. And then <clears throat> when it came to Mission 89, we just beginning to get a lot of the African church planting. And so I was trying to engage the African churches at that particular point. So I've always been aware of the diversity in London and had a real heart for integrating people and making it all work together. And do you think the churches work well together across the ethnic divides? Or what are the challenges in, in seeing that? How, what, and what's encouraged you in it, I suppose? Well, I must admit that one of the things that's really helped me is that um, when I finished at university, I expected to be going out to Africa. In fact, um, by that time, I'd actually um, persuaded the sister in the intensive care unit to marry me. And uh, we looked as if we were going out to Zambia. Be, be doing. I was going to do some dental work, and uh, Marion was going to be involved in nursing. And, and it all looked set. We've been accepted by the Africa Evangelical Fellowship. We knew where we were meant to be going. Our churches have been very supportive in releasing us. And right at the last minute, uh, we were told we couldn't go because the economy in Zambia had been reconstructed and there was no finance for the particular project we were going to. So we were put on hold for four years. And, um, <clears throat> but whilst we were preparing to go out to Africa, we had it absolutely drummed into us that you're not going out there like the former colonial power. Yeah. This, yeah. this country's just got independence. Yeah. This is the time when you go and absorb yourself in their culture yes. to be supportive. Yeah. So for me, um, when I didn't go to Africa, I mean, someone gave me this crazy word. They said, Hugh, you're not meant to go to Africa. God's going to send Africa to you. And I was thinking, well, what <laughs> does that mean, you know? But it did mean when sort of Africa arrived on the doorstep. For me, it wasn't a case of standing in my own culture to try and reach out to others. It was a case of knowing that I needed to immerse myself in their culture. So I've, I've never felt I've really worked cross-culturally. I've felt I've worked more sort of multiculturally, really, and I think that's helped. Um, and when I look at where the churches are at on that, I think there are not enough people that manage to do that. Um, you can have this sort of patronizing attitude where it says oh you know these these ethnic churches they're so wonderful you know they pray all night and this kind of thing and I, and I, I think that's a bit you know technically I think you'd call that exoticism where yeah. you're yeah. you're not being realistic in yeah. relationships yeah. and then on the other hand you know you get people trying to relate to uh, English culture and just can't cope with our constant self-effacing. You know, they say, if you don't think you're any good, why should I think you're any good? <laughs> and so we get these miscommunications. Yeah. But I think things are working through. And uh, I think it's, it's great to see the diversity. Yeah. And do you see any great examples of where that is working really, really well? I mean, I was in Holland last week and, and there was a pastor there whose uh, church has been deeply impacted by the refugee and, and asylum seeker. Uh, and immigrants in, in, into Holland and they have five different um, uh, congregations within one church. One is Farsi speaking, one is Suriname speaking, one is uh, Arabic speaking. Um, do you see examples like that in the UK? Yes, do I do. Good I do, but the one thing I am noticing is that um, a lot of the examples where you think this is great, this is integration, it's, it's great integration on a racial level sometimes, but actually when you're looking at uh, socioeconomic diversity it's not at all yeah. 
So I could name uh, two very significant churches yeah. where you can say this is an amazing black and white combination, yeah. but it's, you know, let lawyer speak under lawyer, really. Right, it, yeah. So, yeah. so we, we can sometimes find that these good examples work because there's some other unifying factor. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're all of the same age group, we're all working in the same yeah. kind of area. So I think the challenges exist, and I think you know, church always tends to want to end up more monocultural than it should. <laughs> and so we constantly have to think whether that's saying, let's be more uh, generationally diverse, um, ethnically diverse, um, socially diverse, all of these challenges are there for us, really, all the time. Now, what have you learned about leadership from engaging with um, a black majority church leaders? Or uh, how has your leadership changed, been modelled, been affected? Um, have you learned good things? Leadership styles are very different. I know that I like to lead from sort of in the midst rather than sort of way out front. Right. Okay. Um, it's not here am I, follow me. Yes. I'm sort of. You know, let's get a consensus and go together, yeah. um, <clears throat> which is a slightly different style from yes. that which you'd find in a lot of um, the African churches. Yeah. But I certainly don't go in to uh, to criticise or comment. You know, uh, what works works. Um, people have got different cultural backgrounds. Uh, my leadership style probably works better for people that are used to a leader that's happy to be without that kind of distance. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I struggle with the concept of pastoral distance, whereas a lot of people promote, yeah. you know. I think it was General de Gaulle that said that authority comes from distance. And I think, well, some people's authority does. Yeah. But when you look at the way that Jesus yeah. operated, it wasn't like that. Yeah. So <coughs> I suppose what I've learned is that leadership is diverse. Mm. Um, mm. And it, to some extent, you have to start leading a group of people from within their comfort zone, okay. otherwise they're not going to follow you anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But then maybe you can, as you go on, yeah. change that comfort zone so yeah. that actually you're yeah. introducing other concepts of leadership. Yeah. So you can begin to introduce sort of servant leadership, le leadership in the midst, consensual leadership. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when you start, that's not where people are at. And, and so that's part of our, our, our difficulty. I've also seen some situations where the leadership is so consensual that they never go anywhere. <laughs> you know, because no one's prepared to say, let us go in this direction. Um, yeah. and, and, and that, you know, and it's, it's this diversity of leadership which makes me feel that we've got to be prepared to have a certain amount of flexibility in our leadership style and to respect other people's leadership styles and thinking that in different situations, different things might work better. And that um, requires a lot of uh, ability to listen, doesn't it? And to really hear what other people yeah. are saying and sometimes to translate yeah. <laughs> as well what's being and, said. And I think the other thing it requires is a certain amount of security in your own identity. Okay. And that's something which you develop over time. I, yeah. <laughs> I certainly yeah. didn't start off being secure in my identity. I was yeah. like everyone else. Yeah. I think most of us in leadership have insecurities and the the more we own up to them, the yeah. more likely we are to So to there have been forward. specific moments in your own leadership where um, there's been a transition to that greater sense of security of identity? Yes, I, I, I think you, you could probably um, chart it almost like a, uh, an upward trajectory. Um, 
but it, it probably does have steps in it and there probably have been times when something's happened and I thought well that's really a good opportunity to go away and learn actually you learn more from the painful bits than you do from the successes really I think you know, go through something and think oh yeah, really did I do that the best possible way and and um, having having space to reflect having people around you is important too okay. um, I, I don't ever want to be that isolated I am quite self-sufficient as a person yeah. and that can be a big disadvantage and I know that there are times when God has really dealt with my self-sufficiency there was one uh, was one time <laughs> I'd actually preached at the beginning of a, a year it was a January sermon about God wanting to deal with our self-sufficiency. I'd really worked this <laughs> sermon through and I could find examples in scripture and I was really preaching on this. Yeah. And then a few days later, something happened and it really sort of uh, knocked me. I mean, I wasn't expecting this and it was like, and, and I, 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 was, I was sitting at home at the, at the table and, and Marion, my wife, came in and said, whatever's happened to you? I said, um, oh, I think God's just dealing with my self-sufficiency. And she said, <laughs> she said, and I suppose you're going to sit there and sort it out all on your own. And, and it was just so, <laughs> such an apposite comment, because that's exactly what I decided to do. And, and it, she got me summed up to a T. And so I'm, I'm, I'm constantly having to learn that, you know, self-sufficiency is not the way forward. And and appreciating other people and bringing other people in and testing your ideas and looking for partnerships. I've, I've always wanted to work in partnerships, but sometimes, particularly in some of the cultures I've worked in, partnerships are a little bit looked down upon. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not meant to be working with others, you're meant to be leading everybody. So that's been painful at times where people have misunderstood my desire to work in partnership. And partnership requires us to think about how we use power mm. and often how we abuse power as well. What's been your own experience of, of, of I suppose, giving up power in partnerships? And, uh, well, I've always been fascinated in working um, across generational divides, really. So, I mean, obviously I've done a lot where I've worked across ethnic divides, but working across generational divides has really excited me. I look at the fact that when I started leading churches, I was in my 20s. Yeah. And you know, I, I can see I can see the church congregational age going down and the leadership age going up, and yeah. I think that's wrong. Yeah. So I'm forever trying to you know work alongside younger leaders and yeah. work out how to encourage them. Yeah. Um, so there are times when people have misunderstood and think you know how can you give so much away to someone who's so much younger than yourself? Yeah. And yeah. you yeah. know, I get yeah. all of those kind yeah. of things. And sometimes I'm more secure in the relationship than the people around me are secure right. with the relationship. Okay. Yeah. And I've had situations where people have actually worked to, to bring a relationship down mm. because they couldn't handle it, mm. because they didn't think it was the way that yeah. leadership yeah. worked. Yeah. But I'm, I'm a bit inclined to want to experiment in some of these things. <laughs> I, I look in the scriptures and I think, you know how Paul worked with Timothy, how he worked with Silas, I think. And, and he, he was probably more self-sufficient than I am. <laughs> but he found ways of doing it. He had lots to boast about. <laughs> but uh, the work with emerging leaders, um, what do you see changing across the generations as you're working with emerging leaders? And how can uh, leaders of our generation, I suppose, help emerging leaders to really stand up and uh, make the maximum contribution that they can? Sure. I think the biggest thing is there's a sense in which some kind of help is almost too much help. 
it's like you know I'm going to show you exactly how to do this yeah. and you've got to do it exactly yeah. like this yeah. and and a lot of it for me is about letting people find their own expression and find their own feet okay. and what does it look like for them yeah. Um, yeah, you, you reach a point to be honest where you you lose um, sight of your own preferences yeah, I mean, I, I was saying to my wife the other day. I said, uh, "Oh, another worship conference." Said, you know, I can't remember what worship I really like anymore. <laughs> you know, it's just you, you go with where you're at, <laughs> and I, I think sometimes our preferences can dominate to the point where we don't allow other expressions to come up. And I think that um, certainly uh, working with younger generational leaders, for me, one of the big things is give them space, give them opportunity, um, give them support. Um, don't emphasize mistakes, emphasize successes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, allow them to fail. Yeah, allow yeah. them to fail, but yeah. then don't harp on about it. Yeah. You know, sort of, yeah. let's get that one over and yeah. Yeah, get you yeah. back up again. And We, we tend to, forward. don't we, um, kind of forget our own failures and forget the mistakes that we made when we were 20 and 30 and, and, and the people around us. Some who, of them, some of them still <laughs> haunt me. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and maybe forget what it was like to be a young leader who mm. was starting out on their own. Um, now, your role as uh, president of the Church Together in England, you, you must see um, a great diversity in the church, and you, you have, I suppose, the advantage of having a, a bit of a bird's eye view <laughs> of, of what's going on across the, the regions, across the UK. Sure. What encourages you? Uh, in in churches, in the way they're working together, in their expressions mm-hmm. of evangelism and, and mission together. So what, what, what's encouraging to you? Sure. Um, first of all, it's a real privilege to have the overview. Um, I'm one of six presidents at the moment with Churches Together in England. Um, I'm technically number three, I think it comes. <laughs> I think it goes the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Cardinal Archbishop of the Free Churches Moderator, okay. which is myself, okay. and then, then it rolls on. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. we all work together. Um, but one of the great things about being in that position, and, and uh, actually the free churches still constitutes about a third of the congregations in the UK. Okay. So we're roughly, you know, um, you could say very, very broad terms. Yeah. You, I know the Anglicans have got more congregations, the Catholics have got, probably got more congregational members, and, yeah. and, and, but, but you could say a third, a third, a third, and then yeah. there's others as well. And, and, and I've got Methodist, Baptist, United Reformed Church Salvation. I mean, looking at that, I, I can see huge diversity. Yeah. But one of the advantages of the overview is that you see the growth alongside some of the areas of decline. Okay. Okay. So we've got decline at the moment right across the country in rural communities. Okay. And uh, a lot of the Methodist churches, for example, are in rural communities. Yeah. And the Anglican churches as well. In rural communities are a real challenge. Yeah. But we're seeing a huge amount of church growth yeah. in urban communities. Okay. And it's, it's having that overview yeah. and realizing that, uh, that these days a lot of people who live in rural communities prefer to travel to church in urban communities. Yeah. Yeah. So when we feel at times that well, our congregational levels are dropping, yeah. Yeah. some of it isn't just because there's a, a greater disinterest. Yeah. Some of it is because there's different ways in which people do church where they want to go Um, you live in a rural community but you want to be part of a a dynamic big church which you're not going to get in a rural community so you drive to the nearest town and you become part of the church there and obviously I mean we've got a lot of the Pentecostal churches within the free churches group so I can see some dynamic growth Mm -hmm. alongside 
the decline. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things I, I try to do with the historic uh, free church denominations, I try to encourage them to, to regain something of the energy that they had yeah. In their in their roots, yeah. and to say, look, yeah. some of that's yeah. still valid. You didn't start big, yeah. so you know, uh, yeah. decline is not necessarily yeah. the end of the world. Yeah. If you've got something distinctive that you yes. can bring, yeah. and I love the variety. You know, I, um, I as, as a child, I was in the Salvation Army, so I've got some affinity <laughs> there, and I did a lot of preaching around Methodist circuits yeah. when I was in my teens and at yeah. university. Yeah. So I, I'm used to the breadth, and obviously I was a youth leader in an Anglican church, so I pretty well covered a range here, and I married a Baptist. So. <laughs> but but I, I love the diversity, but there's so much that each of these have got that they can bring into the mix, and it's knowing how to, to re-energize some of that vision. Um, I'm working with some youngsters in the Salvation Army at the moment, looking at how the original founding vision that the Salvation Army had could actually be dynamic and relevant now. So you've got all of these possibilities that are bubbling away out there and I find it really exciting. Yeah. And what are the frustrations, I suppose? What are the, what are the, what are the challenges? The biggest challenge is um, lack of confidence in a lot of leaders. Um, you, once the leadership in a church has lost its sense of confidence in where it's going and, and everything else. It's very difficult to, to, to take things forward. And I, I do find that, that disappointing. And, and I know how hard it is when you're in a, a challenging situation to keep up that confidence, which says God's going to do something in this community. And to know actually how to celebrate the successes when you know the successes yes. are rarer than the failures. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I've, I've noticed that where we can see leaders that can celebrate the successes, keep that sense of confidence in the gospel, mm -hmm. confidence in calling, that actually you can make a difference. But the frustrations are that in a lot of places we haven't got that in our leaders and we need to feed that back into them. And, and how does that best happen? I mean, how can those leaders best be encouraged, supported, ministered to? Mm. Well, I think that, obviously, if we look at it in a denominational setting, I think denominations have got to take some responsibility for bringing their leaders together and encouraging them. Um, I think a lot of church leaders just get left to get on with it, and they don't get any uh, denominational encouragement. They don't often get local encouragement, too. And I think getting that encouragement that comes from other people, one of the things that has been quite challenging to me is... That, that those that are encouraged tend to flock with those that are encouraged okay. <laughs> rather than yeah. actually to spread their encouragement to those yeah. that are discouraged. Yeah. I don't know why the encouraged think that they might actually end up being disaffected if they meet with the yeah. discouraged, <laughs> where it actually goes the other way. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness doesn't overcome it. So yeah. I'm really excited about the possibility of people that are enthusiastic seeing that growth finding ways in which they can infuse people that might be somewhat disenchanted and to give them the opportunity to to be in a vibrant environment yes. from time to time yeah. because that infuses yeah. um, I, I was at a big worship event at the, at the last weekend and and just having church leaders come into that and a lot of them did yeah. was just such an encouragement to yeah. them yeah. now you don't go back and then say oh but it's not going to work where I am yeah. you need to carry something of 
that enthusiasm, that confidence back into the local situation. Yeah, it's almost like having a field hospital for <laughs> yes. yeah, that's for very good way of putting it. In the back yes, there, yeah, really. and I've been there. I've been wounded in the battle. I went through a period of chronic fatigue where. I could preach on a Sunday, but then I'd spend most of the rest of the week in, in bed because I just was absolutely exhausted. Yeah. But I, I did sense that, you know, that, that, uh, that God would restore the years, you know, yeah. and that yeah. the field hospital was very much the vision yeah. I had in my mind, wounded in the battle, but yeah. that doesn't make you want to give up the fight. Yeah. And, uh, and, and what, what advice would you have for church leaders who find themselves in that position, who maybe are, you know, they get up and preach on a Sunday, they're, they're tired the rest of the week or they're disillusioned the rest of the week. What advice would you have? For I would say find someone who can encourage you. You know, it might even be someone in your congregation who has got a positive view that you can share with. Just don't dis spend all your time sharing with the ones that are going to bring you down. Um, I think a lot of people haven't realised that in church leadership you can actually get a huge amount from the people that you're pastoring. So for me, because I don't have a great commitment to pastoral distance, yeah. I'm quite happy to think, well, who have I got here who I could sit down and talk to? Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas sometimes we think, oh goodness, I don't want to share my burdens. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, it's not just sharing the burdens, it's receiving other people's encouragement and other people's feedback that can make a lot of difference. Yeah, and I think what I find about amongst emerging uh, leaders and millennials in particular is that they're looking for that authenticity in their leaders, they're looking for the willingness to say uh, we don't have this all sewn up but let's go on a journey together because actually <laughs> God's in this and he's leading us. Yeah and, and that's a good example where you know if, if a senior leader is being authentic with a younger leader the senior leader can gain so much from that younger leader and and people have got to stop thinking of it as one-way traffic you know I'm the mighty man of God who's giving to you you know you've got stuff that you can give to me and um, we all need to realize that we're on a journey and and I, I think one of the dangers of leadership is thinking that we're ahead of the rest and sometimes some leaders get so far ahead of the rest it's just what's the point um, you know at least at least when the children of Israel were led by the the pillar of cloud, it stayed within view. It didn't dis disappear <laughs> off over the horizon and they were left shrugging their shoulders and going, wow, that was very impressive, but where do we go now? Yeah. <laughs> Staying in view is really important. Yeah, so I hear a lot of what you're saying is about proximity. Actually. Yeah, it yeah. is, very much. Yeah, which is really encouraging for someone who, um, you know, is in the role that you are, that has such an, an oversight of, um, of, of churches and what's happening across the country. Now. Um, looking back on your leadership journey, um, what didn't they teach you at Bible college? <laughs> this is where I confess I did not go to Bible college. <laughs> I was expected to. But they, they were trying to get us out to the mission field so quickly. <laughs> they said, there's a real need out there. Okay. You know, you need to go. Yeah. And then when they put us on hold for four years, my wife and I had this big discussion, what do we do now? And she was very keen that we went to Bible college as a couple, which I think would have been great, actually, in terms of uh, joint ministry. Yeah. My big fear was I'm a bit of an academic swat, and I could see oh, myself okay. going to Bible college and, you know, tick off the yeah. masters, tick yeah. off the yeah. doctorate, yeah. and then lecture. <laughs> and I thought, actually, I do know that God wants me to do hands-on stuff. Yeah. And we were quite challenged in those early days by Michael Griffiths, who said, don't try and do anything overseas you haven't done at home first. So that's when we started looking at church planting in the UK. 
So I did everything in the wrong order. You know, I did I did a master's in divinity late yeah. through Pakistan, believe it or not, yeah, right. and then I did a PhD in religious studies at SOAS. So I did it all the wrong way around. Yeah. Um, so they didn't teach me anything at Bible college. So I didn't go. <laughs> but there there are things that I would say that I really benefited from from learning hands on, and. I think that sometimes when I've talked to friends that went down a different route, yeah. um, you know, the we train you, we ordain you, then we find out whether or not you can do it. Yeah. And so, if you can't, you're left so, high and dry. So. I, I'm actually quite grateful that I had the opportunity to okay. find out if I could do it okay. um, yeah. and then pick up all the additional stuff that I needed all along the, the way. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm grateful for that, really. Yeah, and in those early days of, of practical hands-on, what, what were the big learnings for you? Oh, goodness me. I mean, pastorally, I was a disaster to start with. I, 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 you know, I, I wanted to teach. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize that actually, you know, when it talks about, like, the fivefold ministry, yeah. The idea is that you, you don't become expert in one area, but you become a generalist because yeah, we're all yeah. meant to be being equipped. Yeah. And I thought, I'm a teacher, you know, don't come to me with your problems. <laughs> um, and I had to learn that actually you need, in ministry, you, you, you can't say, you know, I won't deal with that yeah. because I'm, I'm not a pastor. I won't deal with that because I'm not an evangelist. I can't yeah. lead you to the Lord. Yeah. You, you, you've got to be a generalist. And I think the big lesson I learned early on was stop thinking of yourself as an expert in an area yeah. and realize that ministry is about being there for people whatever they need yeah. and and being prepared to be that rather than limit yourself and and draw up others around you not not self-sufficient in that sense it's i and i only yeah. but yeah. but to have that rounded ministry that you can bring other people into so that you you do start to your weaknesses as that's a really important principle than just gathering people around that are just like you gather some around that add things that are completely different from what you've got yourself and that are better than you yeah I'm yeah which doesn't not. take much in some areas <laughs> uh hugh was good thanks so much for uh, sharing with us today for being so honest and uh, there's great wisdom uh there for someone who's uh, been in ministry for quite some time 50 uh, years plus <laughs> really frightening <laughs> and uh how can we pray for you in the roles that you have and the significant sure. responsibilities that you i have? think you use the word proximity yeah. just pray that i never lose that yeah. because i think that's so important yeah. and if i can model something of that and be an encouragement to others who might feel drawn in that direction then that would be a real blessing brilliant hugh osgood thanks so much for joining us today. thank you so thanks for joining us on the forge leadership podcast this week make sure you don't miss a single episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts from be that iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn or somewhere else. We'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at forge-leadership.com with questions and comments.